Well, because of the Art of Marriage event uh, this weekend, I've had marriage on my mind, and as I hope uh, many of you have as well. And uh, this morning, I thought it would be good for us to linger a bit longer on this important subject of marriage. And after the bulletin was uh, printed, uh, in, in light of um, getting back to John and doing our high priestly prayer, uh, I called an audible here and just thought, you know, this is a, a, a golden opportunity this weekend just to really highlight um, and maximize the subject of, of marriage. Um, in the early days of our church, I wanted to have some kind of annual marriage conference or retreat because it's such a critical topic that I don't think you can ever talk about enough. And so I trust that today's message will serve uh, as a helpful supplement to what some of you have already heard uh, Friday and and Saturday, or maybe serve as a helpful stimulant uh, for those of you that were unable to attend uh, the conference this weekend. Um, But if we were to take a survey this morning and ask those of you who are married to write down a list of the biggest challenges or problems in your marriage, what do you think would be written down the most? Well, I guarantee you one thing that would be on everyone's list and maybe even on the top of everyone's list, and that is communication. Communication or a lack thereof. Communication is the heartbeat, the lifeblood of every relationship and especially every marriage. You can't have a good marriage without good communication. Effective communication is the key to developing intimacy with your spouse as well as resolving the inevitable conflicts that occur in any marriage relationship. Nothing influences the mood of a marriage more than the words that are spoken or not spoken. Let me read for you an account by Paul Tripp and his excellent resource called War of Words, Getting to the Heart of Your Communication Struggles. Tell me if this doesn't sound familiar to those of you who are married. And it all started so innocently and so typically. Both of us were at the end of a long Friday, at the end of a long week. Both of us had our own agenda for the evening and our own set of expectations for the other person. Both of us were more demanding than serving and thus quickly hurt when the other rejected our ideas for the evening. Finally, both of us spoke out of that hurt. We accused rather than listened, criticized rather than looked at ourselves, Each of us gave up on the other and slid into the cocoon of our own hurt and anger. We drove through Philadelphia in silence. Finally, we had a night out with each other, yet we drove along with neither of us saying anything. It wasn't supposed to be this way. The silence was deafening, and it seemed to last for hours, even though it was actually only a few minutes. In our heads, we both were playing the videotape of what had happened earlier, nursing our hurt and reaffirming our innocence. Fortunately, it wasn't long before the silence was broken, forgiveness was sought and received, and we were once again enjoying rather than tolerating each other's company. 
Now, how many married couples can relate to an experience like that? Don't be shy. I've got both hands up, okay? Because we've had more than one of those experiences in 25 years of marriage. So uh, we'll have to ask Earl and Trish how many they've had in 57 years of marriage, right? But uh, that little uh, story reminds me of a date that Kelly and I had early on in our marriage when we still lived in California. And I always looked forward to our date nights, and I distinctly remember asking Kelly that night where she felt like eating, and she, told, and she told me that she didn't care. And I actually believed her. I found out after she was lying. And uh, apparently she was in the mood for a nice romantic sit-down Italian dinner. And of course she expected me to, to know that, to figure that out without her telling me. Well, being the knucklehead that I am, I took her word for it and uh, made what seemed to be the most logical decision I could. I was planning on taking her to a, to a movie after dinner, and so we didn't have much time, and so I took her to the restaurant that was closest to the movie theater. Makes sense, right, guys? Unfortunately, the name of the restaurant was Fat Burger. <laughs> well, needless to say, Kelly was not impressed... I found out later that the name itself even grossed her out. <laughs> should, have, should have kept that for the guy's night out, I guess, right? Um, but as we were standing there, looking at the menu, in other words, we weren't sitting down at a nice white linen tablecloth, you know, with those servers coming and filling up our water, lighting the candle. We were standing there with a bunch of people behind us looking to see what, what greasy burger we wanted to eat. Um, I could tell she wasn't pleased with my decision. Well, I won't go into into the details of all that transpired that evening, but suffice it to say, we refer to that now as the date from hell. (laughs) Listen, we've all had those moments with our spouse, and I would say that almost all the struggles that we face in our marriages stem from a breakdown in communication. That's what we experienced that night, was a breakdown in communication. We didn't communicate well. Listen to a, a few statements that I think are, too, are, are all too familiar. Quote, my wife keeps everything bottled up inside of her. My husband has a one-word vocabulary. No, make that two. One is uh-huh, and the other is uh-uh. She talks so much, it's hard to get a word in edgewise. He always has to have the last word. We talked for a long time, but I'm still not sure what she's trying to say. Why are the ladies laughing on that one? (laughs) It used to be that we were never at a loss for words, but now we don't seem to have anything to talk about. What happened? I think these are all expressions of a breakdown in communication. Now, obviously, the Bible contains many, many principles that, if applied, will help us avoid this breakdown in communication. And a few of the main principles of effective communication are strung together in a series of verses in the book of Ephesians. And I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and look with me at verses 25 through 32. Now, this is a passage that I know we're very familiar with. And uh, I've lost track of how many times 
uh, I've personally read through this particular uh, passage on my own, but also uh, in, in counseling sessions where it's become obvious to me that part of the problem that this couple is facing is that they have a breakdown in communication. And so we got to go back to the basics of how do you communicate? Um, this is a passage that I will always go through in a, in a premarital counseling session with, with uh, usually four to six weeks of premarital counseling when someone asks me if I'll, if I'll perform their wedding. This is one of the passages that we camp out on in, in one of those sessions uh, just to make sure that we understand biblical communication. Now, before I read this passage, let me just set the context here. Uh, the book of Ephesians is a, a, an interesting book. It divides uh, right in half, chapters 1 through 3, talk about our position in Christ, and chapters 4 through 6 talk about our practice in Christ. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1 is really the hinge on which the book turns, where it says here, Therefore I, I the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. In other words, live like a Christian, the, the, the worthy of the calling. The calling is, is what he just got done describing in chapters 1 through 3, and now he's about to describe how we uh, should live in light of that in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And Paul talks about some other things, unity and, and things, but then in verse 17, he picks up this theme of walking in a manner worthy. Notice he says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they have become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And so Paul proceeded here to paint a, a vivid portrait of a pagan. He describes what, what characterizes the lives of unbelievers. And before we came to know Christ, we were, we were walking aimlessly. We were in the dark. We, we were, there was a separateness about us. There was foolishness. There was hardness. There was callousness. There was shamelessness. There was greediness. Uh, that, that is a description of someone without Christ. And then he goes on in verse 20 through 24 to contrast the life of a believer. That's how a pagan lives, but let me tell you how a Christian should live. But you did not learn Christ in this way, verse 20, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. In other words, we shouldn't live the way we used to live before we were saved. We're totally different now. And in Christ, we've undergone this complete spiritual makeover that has transformed our lives and made us new creatures in Christ. And, and he likens this transformation to changing clothes, changing outfits. And that's this idea of putting off and putting on. It's a, it's a key concept in understanding our sanctification. And so the process of change, changing uh, from sinfulness to Christ-likeness is, is what we call sanctification. That, that change involves two factors. We need to stop doing certain things and start doing the exact opposite things. It's, it's really, sanctification could be boiled down to replacing old habits with new habits. That's the process 
of sanctification. And then he goes on here in verses 25 through 32, our text for this morning, that to, to illustrate this replacement process with some very specific practical things, most of which relate to how Christians should and shouldn't communicate with others. And we're going to see here as I read this how Paul just lays out for us four basic principles regarding how to communicate in a Christ-like way. And I want you to notice as we read this together that these, these principles are not suggestions, they're not good ideas, they're in the imperative tense, that means they're commands. And these commands here in these verses uh, are specifically given by God to help prevent and solve communication problems, not just in our marriage, but in any and all relationships, whether it's a parent-child relationship, brother-sisters, employer-employee. But this morning, we're going to specifically zero in on this and view this through the lens of marriage. As I said, I so often use this passage for that purpose in, in counseling sessions. And, and just to say this, by no means is this a, an exhaustive list of everything you need to know about communication. But if we obey these four simple commands here, we can become more Christ-like in how we communicate. See if you can pick them out as I read. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. I want to submit to you this morning that if a husband and wife seriously commit themselves to obeying what God said in these verses, I guarantee them that their marriage will be much more pleasing to God and much more pleasing to them. And so what we're talking about this morning is, is, is making a commitment to Christ-like communication. That, that there are four commitments here that we need to make uh, that will help us communicate in a Christ-like way. And if you grab the notes in the back, hopefully you've got those in front of you and you can just follow along with me as I go through these four commitments. The first commitment is this, never lie. How's that for basic communication? Never lie, always tell what? The truth. Never lie, always tell the truth. We find this principle in verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So we're first here told to lay aside falsehood. In other words, don't lie. Lying obviously takes many forms. 
Um, you say, well, I, I didn't actually lie. Well, did you exaggerate? Did you intentionally mislead? Did you leave some important details out of what you were sharing? Were you flattering and saying things that you really didn't mean? Were you disguising what you really meant or how you really felt? Paul says, lay aside falsehood and speak truth. Notice we're commanded here to speak. In other words, clamming up is not an option for the Christian. Communicating is, is, is Christ-like. If you're a Christian, you, you can't just say, well, you know, I'm just not a, I'm not a, I'm not a talker. I just don't like to talk. You know, I just like to be quiet. Well, that's not an option. If you're a Christian, you need to speak. You need to be able to communicate. You can't hold things in or hold things back. You can't expect people to read your minds. If you want them to truly know you, you need to open up and reveal yourself. I mean, relationships are based on revelation. Consider our relationship with God. How do we know God? We, he revealed himself to us through his word. And if he hadn't revealed himself to us through his word, we would never have been able to have a relationship with him. And so it says here that we need to speak, lay aside falsehood and speak, but he says very specifically, speak truth. In other words, be open and honest about what you're thinking, what you're feeling. Uh, and we need to tell the truth in love. If you just go back up, to verse 15 there in the same chapter, Ephesians 4.15, we're commanded to speak the truth in love. Some people are like, you know what, I, I, I just told them the truth. Yeah, but did you have to tell them the truth in that way? I mean, there, there's, it's one thing to tell the truth and, you know, there, there's one thing in being honest and then being brutally honest. I think we have to be careful right, to, to, to speak the truth in a loving way. We have to be careful not only what we say, but how we say it and when we say it. How many times have you had a communication breakdown in your marriage, in your family, simply because of the tone of how it came across? You didn't mean anything by it. You didn't even realize that, 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 that you didn't hear the tone, but your spouse heard that tone, your parent, your kid heard that tone. Or the timing was just all wrong. That was not the smartest time to bring up that situation. And so oftentimes the tone and timing make all the difference in how a person responds to what we say. We, we know that communication is made up of, of several elements. There's the words themselves. There's the tone of voice, the, maybe the volume in which they're said. And there's also what's called nonverbal communication. That's the eye contact, the facial expressions, the gestures, the posture, the, the touch. These are all important elements to keep in mind when you're communicating. But here's our first principle. It's very simple. Never lie. Always tell the truth. Second principle. Never go to bed mad. Never go to bed mad. Always make things right. Always make things right. Notice verse 26. Paul says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. 
I think it's interesting that he says, be angry and yet do not sin. In other words, it's possible to be angry and not sin. Anger in and of itself is not necessarily sinful. We know that because it says of God in the scriptures that he has anger. And that's evidence that anger isn't always sinful or wrong because God would never uh, be guilty of any kind of sin. It's, it's okay to be angry as, as long as you're angry about the same things that God is angry about. Sin, wickedness, injustice, disobedience to his word. This is what we called righteous anger or righteous indignation. You say, well, how do I know if my anger is righteous or, or unrighteous? Well, you just need to ask yourself, what made you mad? You know, remember uh, Richard Sherman and uh, uh, I'm blanking on the quarterback for the Patriots. Tom Brady, you mad, bro? What, 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 made you, what, what made you mad? Was it a sin against God or a sin against you? Was it based on the fact that God didn't get what he wanted or you didn't get what you wanted? Was God offended and that's why you're angry? Or were you offended? And that's why you're angry. See, the majority of our anger, if we're honest, is, is unrighteous. It's motivated by pride and jealousy and resentment and hatred over wrongs done to us personally. And typically our, our anger is, is expressed in, in two, one of two sinful ways, really two ends of the spectrum here, two sinful responses uh, to our anger, and one is ventilation, where we just blow up and, and say things that we regret afterwards. Uh, the other end of the spectrum is that we internalize things. We don't say what needs to be said. We clam up. We give, we give our spouse the silent treatment. Sometimes that even feels better than chewing them out, right? Just give them the silent treatment. We're sticking it to them by not talking to them. Either way... Sinful anger is one of the main hindrances to the communication flow between individuals. When you introduce anger into a conversation, either by blowing up or clamming up, basically it locks up your communication. I've watched this in, in, in our marriage over the years. If, I, if Kelly senses that I'm getting angry in our conversation, she just shuts down. Whose fault is that? Well, it's both our faults, but I initiated that shutdown by my anger. And so we, we need to understand this, that it, that it is critical that we learn to, to control our anger because it will derail our communication every time. And you say, well, but, but you don't understand. I, I just have the hardest time controlling my anger. Well, listen, it's a whole lot easier than you think or want to admit. How many times in the midst of a of some heated argument, the phone rings, right? And, and you're, you, you go from, you know, veins popping out and eyes bulging and, you're, and all of a sudden you're like, hello. <laughs> Don't tell me you haven't done that, right? In this calm, controlled tone of voice. You can control it more than you want to admit. You just don't want to. So we need to diffuse the anger bomb before it explodes 
I love Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. In other words, you should be the kind of person that, that your spouse just, just knows they can't fight with you. That they can't fight with you because you will not fight. I heard of a, a couple years ago that, that uh, their, their kids said, we never, ever heard our mom and dad fight. And, and, and they said, and the reason is because my dad would not fight. He just wouldn't. And so my mom had nowhere to go. <laughs> she just wouldn't fight. He just wouldn't fight. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Notice what he goes on to say. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. We have a tendency to let our unrighteous anger go unresolved for a a long period of time. And anger that has never been properly resolved, I believe, has ruined more marriages than anything else. When a couple fails to keep short accounts with each other and allows issues to build up between them, anger festers for hours and days and weeks and months and sometimes even years until they end up with this brick wall, cinder block wall between them. And it's just, it's, it's just this big old bitter wall, wall of bitterness that's, that's dividing them. And that's why it's so important to resolve a situation, whatever it was, that made you angry as quickly as possible. And, and, and Paul gave us a guideline here, uh, not just a guideline, he gave us a, a command, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So what's the time frame? You've got till you go to bed to get that right, to make that right. Listen, if you go to bed mad, several things happen. Number one, you sin because you're disobeying this clear command of not letting the sun go down in your anger. Number two, you're compounding the problem. You're making it worse. You're making it bigger than it really is. Uh, You may understand uh, compounding interest, right? You start with a little bit of money, and and it compounds over time. And next thing you know, 20 years later, you've got all this money in the bank uh, because it compounded. It just built, built up, built up over time. And unfortunately, that's what happens to our anger and our problems. They build up over time if they're not resolved. Matthew chapter 6, verse 34 says, each day has enough trouble of its own. Listen, God is gracious to give us just what we can handle in any given day. But if you push that off to the next day and add it to the problems of that day and then push that to the next day and add it to the problems of those days and that week and that month and that year and that decade... You are under this weight of burden that you cannot, that God never intended you to have to bear. He's given you a gracious way of of, of just kind of hitting the delete button every day and just just erasing the board and start fresh every day. So if you go to bed mad, you're sinning, you're compounding the problem. Thirdly, you're leaving the door open for resentment and bitterness to take root and grow. Hebrews 12.15 says, See to it that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. 
And then lastly, I would say this, if you go to bed mad, you're helping Satan destroy your marriage. You're helping Satan destroy your marriage. Notice it says, and do not give the devil what? What does it say there? An opportunity. You're giving the devil an opportunity. Literally, you're, you're giving him a place to set up a base of operations. You're giving him a beachhead or a, a, a foothold from which he can, he, he can launch all sorts of attacks on your marriage. He, he gets a foot in the door, if you will, and next thing you know, he busts that door wide open. He will take advantage of every opportunity that you give him. You give him an inch, he'll take a mile. And that's why we need to stay up, if necessary, into the wee hours of the morning to make things right with one another, or at least come to the place where you can call a timeout and mutually agree and prayerfully agree to resolve this the following day. Not just say, oh, well, I guess we'll never figure this out, and you wake up, go to work, and she come home, and then you, never, you act like it never happened when this bitterness is beginning to fester and it getting rooted in your heart because you're, you, just, you just move on and act like it never happened. No, you've got to resolve these kinds of issues on a daily basis. I think if couples just applied that principle alone, just, just don't ever go to bed mad, th- that would save countless marriages. That, just that principle alone. Well, there's more. Number three... Never tear each other down, always build each other up. Never tear each other down, always build each, other's up, each other up. Jump down to verse 29, a very familiar verse. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. So he says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. That word unwholesome literally means rotten. No rotten word. This was a word that was used to describe rotten fruit, rotten fish, maggots and all. Just imagine that nasty stuff. So the idea here is is that which is rancid or putrid or foul or disgusting, uh, profanity, grumbling, complaining, murmuring, gossiping, slandering, worthless words. All these fall into the category of, of of unwholesome words. He says, so don't Let any of those kind of words come out of your mouth, but only a word that is good for edification, only that which would be constructive, that would serve to build the relationship rather than tear down the relationship. You say, well, how do I determine whether or not what I think I should say or what I want to say is constructive or not? Well, ask yourself some questions, three three questions. Number one is it helpful? Will it be helpful? Will it encourage? Will it build up spiritually? That's what you're asking yourself. Is it helpful? Will it be helpful? Number two, is it necessary? Is it, is it necessary? Do I really need to say this? Is, is it the appropriate time and the appropriate place? Is it, is it necessary? And then thirdly, is it gracious? Is it gracious? Am I, am I being gracious to whoever I'm talking to or whoever I'm talking about. Ask yourself, is this, is this how I would like to be talked to? Or is this how I would like to be talked about? So is it helpful? Is it necessary? Is it gracious? Colossians 4, 6, 
Let your speech always be with grace or gracious, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Let me give you a a few examples here of the difference between words that tear down and words that build up. And again, these are in the context of of, of a marriage relationship um, where we typically attack the person rather than the problem. Have you ever noticed that in your marriage, that you oftentimes find yourself attacking each other when it really it all started with, we got a problem, we got to deal with, next thing you know, we're pointing our fingers at each other. We, we, we had our guns aimed at this problem, next thing you know, we're, we're aimed at each other. So these are the, these are, this is the way that kind of goes down. You could say, well, you really don't care about me, or you could say, you know, I really need you right now. Big difference. You could say this, well, so what else do you have to complain about today? Or you could say, you know what, it sounds like you had a tough day. How can I help you? How about this? You shouldn't feel that way. Versus, you know, I'm really sorry you feel that way. Let me pray for you. How about this? You never show me any physical affection. Or you could say, you know, honey, I really love it when you hug me and kiss me. Big difference. How about this? Well, what do you know? Miracles still happen. You're ready on time. (laughs) Instead of saying, hey, hey, babe. Hey, hon, I, I just want you to know I really appreciate how hard you worked to be ready to go on time. I go a long way. How about this one? Man, we got to have company over more often. It's the only time we get a decent meal around here. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. (laughs) Whoa. As opposed to, hey, that was a great meal. You're a fantastic cook. A friend of mine years ago told me when he was first married, within the first few weeks or months of their marriage, his wife made him spaghetti for supper, and uh, he dug into the spaghetti and began eating it, and the first thing he said was, this doesn't taste like my mother's. <laughs> and he ended up with a plate of spaghetti on his head. That's what his wife thought about that comment. So the point is this, we communicate two totally different things depending on the words that we choose and the way we choose to say them. And so instead of just blurting things out as they come to our minds, pause for a moment and ask the Lord to help you craft your words in a way that will be uplifting and encouraging instead of more like a drive-by shooting. Proverbs 18, 21, life and death are in the power of of the tongue. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. This little tongue right here can either give life or it can kill. And a lot of us tend to kill our relationship. We murder one another with our words. Notice he says in verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Listen, this is, this is, these principles are serious. What Paul's talking about here in the realm of communication, Christian communication, man, the Holy Spirit is right smack dab in the middle of all this. If you're a Christian, 
You have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, abiding with you. And so he is the silent party of every chaotic conversation that ever takes place in your marriage, in your home. He's right there watching it. He's listening to it. And it says that he's grieved, he's saddened, it causes him pain and grief when he hears husbands and wives tearing one another down, angrily lashing out and going to bed mad, rolling over and turning the lights out with your backs to one another, and, and, and that just grieves the Holy Spirit. He's right there with you. It's grieving him. He's over there, if you will, in the corner weeping as he's watching this go down. Why would we want to do anything to cause the Holy Spirit grief and, and sorrow after he does so much and continues to do so much for us? And so never tear down, always build up. And then finally, the last principle here is never get revenge, always be willing to forgive. Never get revenge, always be willing to forgive. And, and, and this, these two verses, to me, I think are the, the, um, the climax of this communication um, uh, context here. And, and it says so much in just a short amount of words. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Listen, if you get those two verses uh, you're, you, and you're committed to live out those two verses, man, you will get a ton of mileage in your marriage from those two verses. I mean, they, they are critical to, to unity in marriage. And so the point is, never get revenge, always be willing to forgive. Verse 31, notice there's six vengeful responses that destroy communication. What are they? Number one is bitterness. Let all bitterness be put away from you. That's holding a grudge. It's, 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 it's an improper response to being hurt. And by the way, your spouse will hurt you um, until Jesus comes back. Unfortunately, that's just the way it is. You're going to get hurt. The question is, what do you do with that hurt? Do you get bitter? Do you hold that against them? So put aside, it says, put away bitterness and wrath. That's, the, that's an outburst of anger. And then he says anger, which is more the deep-seated hostility. That's the, the slow burn underneath the surface. And then there's clamor, he says which is the, the, the harsh quarreling and the fighting. I've learned to ask now in, in, in counseling sessions when people say, yeah, we, we, we had a fight the other night. And, and I just equate it with fights that I've been in with my wife. And, and, and so I, I assume that their fight was like our fight. And, and, and afterwards, I had a, a wife tell me, hey, Ken, you, you really need to know that that was not just any fight. And come to find out there was weapons involved, <laughs> knives and other things, and I was shocked, and I thought, you know what, I need to ask some more specific questions in the future. So when someone says, yeah, we had a fight last night, I say, 
first question, were there any weapons involved? It, 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 hopefully they respond in that way. They laugh and it kind of diffuses the tension because that's obviously an extreme situation. But the idea there's harsh quarreling and there's fighting and then it, then it leads to slander where you just start talking bad about each other and, and, and you, you seek to undermine and destroy uh, one another's reputation and even sometimes it goes outside the home and you begin to talk to other people about, yeah, well, my wife and yeah, my husband and, and um, I've always appreciated my wife when we've maybe gotten sideways with one another and she's gone out with one of her girlfriends for lunch or Starbucks and she comes home and I said, so did you tell him what a big jerk I am? Just kind of tongue-in-cheek joking. She's, no. <laughs> I'm so grateful for a wife who guards my reputation, even though I'm a jerk. I'm, I'm the president of the Jerks Married to Godly Women Club. And there, there's, there's plenty of guys in the church that don't even know you're part of the club, right? But you are. Um, but I'm thankful for my wife who does not slander me. She doesn't talk bad about me to other people. And it's so easy to do that, isn't it? You get into a prayer meeting, hanging out with the guys. Hey, what, how can I pray for you? Well, you, can you pray for my wife? <laughs> like, no, no, I didn't ask about your wife. I want to know how to pray for you, right? It's easy to throw our wives under the bus sometimes when we're hanging out with the guys. And then it, it ends with malice. Slander leads to malice, which is, you get to the point where you just want bad stuff to happen to them. You want to hurt them. You want, them, you want to see them suffer. Now, obviously, these are all vengeful responses that destroy communication. He says, put them away. Lay them aside. Put them off. It's the same putting off, putting on. And in their place, you need to put on some other responses. And in verse 32, you see three Christ-like responses that promote communication. The first one is kindness. Be kind to one another. In other words, you show unselfish concern for your spouse. You're also tender-hearted. In other words, you're compassionate, you're sympathetic to your spouse. And guys, this is an area that we probably need to grow in the most, just having some compassion sometimes for, for our spouse. And um, I'm guilty of this. I, I've, I've confessed this to uh, the elders and, 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 and ask them to pray for me that it seems like I'm, it's easier for me to be compassionate for, for people in our church than I am for people in my own family and, and to be tender-hearted. And then obviously it says forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. There needs to be a readiness in your heart to pardon any sins or offenses that your spouse commits against you, to, to overlook personal wrongs done to you, whether they're intentional or unintentional. It doesn't matter. That there will be no harboring of, of revenge or retaliation, that, that you want to just freely forgive their faults and their failures. And, 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 and listen, let's face it, there's times in our marriage that, that, that all of us are not at our best. And we sin and we need to be forgiven. Just as God in Christ has also forgiven us, forgiven you. In other words, forgive your spouse in the same way that God forgives you. When you go to God and confess your sin to him, say, God, I, I messed up. Would you please forgive me? 
You never get a response, I'll think about it. You don't get that. You don't get the silent treatment. You don't get, ask me next week. He forgives you. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice the next verse here, Ephesians 5.1, Therefore be imitators of God. Imitate God. Be like God in the way that you are kind and tender-hearted and forgiving, just like God has forgiven you. And since He's been so kind and tender-hearted towards you, He expects you to be kind and tender-hearted towards others. And since He's forgiven you so graciously and freely and undeservedly, He expects us to do the same for those who sin against us. Listen, if you have a hard time forgiving other people, you need to question whether or not you're truly a child of God. Now, I'm not saying that forgiveness is easy. It's not. It's, it's, at, at times, it's extremely challenging to forgive. But I'm simply pointing out that there's nothing more unchristian than unforgiveness. And if you're not willing to forgive your spouse for something that they've done against you, that may indicate that you've never truly experienced God's forgiveness in your life. Matthew 18, we have the story of the unforgiving servant. Read that. That's your homework. See what you learn from that. How can we pray the way Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6? And forgive us our debts if we're not willing to forgive our debtors, right? For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Listen, when we realize how much God has had to forgive us or has to forgive us, who are we to think that our spouse could sin against us more than we've sinned against God. I don't care how long you've been married, they're not even coming close to the list of sins against you that you have against the Lord. When Kel and I had our premarital counseling, I'll never forget one statement that the pastor said to us. He said, guys, listen, the key to a good marriage is two good forgivers. That's the key to a good marriage. Two good forgivers. And there's a book that recently came out called When Sinners Say I Do. That's the point. Is that you, uh, you, you, you're going to sin a lot against each other. You get two sinful people under the, living under the same roof together and in, in that close quarters, there's going to be some, some, some sin slinging. It's going to be happening. And you got to know how to forgive one another. That's why I always pray and during the wedding ceremony, whenever I'm performing a wedding ceremony, part of my prayer of blessing on that couple is this, Lord, help them both learn to be good forgivers because they're going to sin against each other a lot. That's just the reality of marriage. 
So you tell me, wouldn't it be great to have a marriage where nobody ever lied but always told the truth? Wouldn't that be awesome? Everybody's always being honest. Where nobody ever lost their temper but always made things right before the day ended? You never went to bed mad? Where never, never anybody tore another person down, always built each other up, where nobody ever tried to get revenge, but was always quick to forgive? Sound too good to be true? Sound like heaven on earth? Well, I think that's what our marriages can be, what God intended them to be, a bit of heaven on earth if we're committed to communicating in a Christ-like way. I guarantee that if you're not feeling that bit of heaven on earth in your marriage, it's probably because you're violating one or more of these communication principles. And so I would hope that as we've gone through this this morning, it's just a great reminder for all of us, just some basic truths that all of us need to be committed to that I'm going to commit this morning from this day forward to communicate with my spouse in a Christ-like way. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for just the simplicity of your word. It's, it's just so down to earth and, and real and practical for us today. And Lord, we confess, Lord, we get ourselves all messed up uh, in our marriages when it comes to communication because we we failed to, to follow these, these basic principles that you've laid out for us in your word. And so help us, Lord, by your grace. We can't do this on our own, uh, in our own strength, in our own wisdom, but we long for this, this bit of heaven on earth. And so would you grant us the, the, the strength and the wisdom, uh, the ability to do this through Christ and through the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Make this a reality for us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.